Hi, Sarah. Hi, Allison. So since we've last talked, we've had the first round of parliamentary elections this past Sunday. President Emmanuel Macron's Ensemble Alliance beat the left-wing NUPES Alliance that's led by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, but just barely. And there's a second round this Sunday to see who will actually be in parliament. Yeah, who will be sitting in those 577 seats? Mm -hmm. Macron is in the hot seat, basically, following those results. He needs a comfortable majority if he wants to push forward on his reforms on pensions, for example. Uh, While the left-wing coalition is not set to come out on top, polls suggest Macron is unlikely to have an outright majority in Parliament. So there is likely to be some compromising. Yeah, a kind of check to power, Mm. as they're putting it. Um, Caroline Mécari, she's the lawyer who is running on the new best ticket here in Paris, who I followed in the last episode. Mm. She got through to the second round, so it'll be interesting to follow that. It will. And not to be outdone on the updates from last week's (laughs) episode, Sarah, Thomas Braille, the guy who went up into the plane tree just by the Eiffel Tower. He's ended his hunger strike. He's climbed down after getting a meeting with the Minister of Ecological Transition. It's scheduled for June the 20th, so the day after the second round of the election. Mm. Now, the minister is running for a seat in Parliament herself, and she's not in a comfortable position at the moment. So the question is, will she still be minister after the results of Sunday's vote? That's politics for you. There's trouble brewing in France's famously good healthcare system. With warnings that some A&Es in hospitals will be shut down over the summer. Yeah, yeah. The French Emergency Services Association, SUDEF, estimated a few weeks ago that 120 emergency rooms are facing difficulties. More than half of those have closed partially at night or on weekends. A couple have closed their doors altogether. And it's not just in small towns. Mm. I mean, Bordeaux's hospital, for example, recently started turning away some patients at night. And all of this for a lack of staff. So A&Es were full, you remember, during COVID. Mm -hmm. So it does seem rather shocking that now they're closing their doors. Yeah, yeah. And some are saying the emergency room crisis is just the tip of the iceberg, the canary in the coal mine, if we continue with the metaphors, of a health system that's really on the brink of collapse for a lack of means. Healthcare is a huge part of France's overall budget, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Which makes it a target if you're trying to reduce public spending. Which the government is. Yeah, and previous governments have been trying to do as well. So the French government uh, spent 167 billion euros reimbursing healthcare costs in 2020. Healthcare represented 11.2% of France's GDP in 2019. That's higher than the EU average. And spending has been going up over the last decade, about 2% a year as the population gets older, that kind of thing. Though the health ministry points out that it has increased more elsewhere, so 4% in Germany or the US. But in any case, accessible, good healthcare is a key part of France's social structure. People are willing to pay for it, you know, with high taxes and social charges. Well, for the moment, they're willing. Yeah. But of course, they expect good health care in return. Exactly. Primary care is covered by the social security system. Most everything is reimbursed about 70%. The rest is covered by private insurance plans called mutuelle, which 95% of people have. But the care you get seems to be changing. Public hospitals in particular have been hit with budget cuts. Healthcare workers are being asked to do more with less. And all this, of course, before COVID, which has only made the problem worse. The pandemic pushed the system to the limit. And today, people are exhausted and overworked. 
on ne peut plus s'occuper des gens comme il le faudrait. We can no longer care for people the way we should. We can't talk to them on a human level. We can no longer respond to their basic needs. That's Lucie. She's a nurse in the public hospital in Dreux, about 100 kilometers west of Paris. She says interacting with patients is even more important today because COVID restrictions means that visitors are limited. Hmm. But she finds that she has so many patients to care for that she has no time to stop and check in on them and even offer the very basic services that they need. On n'a pas le temps ni de leur donner à boire ni de les faire communiquer. We don't have time either to give them something to drink or help them contact their families or sometimes even take them to the toilet. So we are no longer meeting people's basic, most vital needs. Personally, I'm not doing well at all. I love my job, but I didn't go into it to be inhumane. Some patients have told us these conditions are making you inhumane, and it's true. She's clearly distressed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and we're hearing this kind of thing from public hospitals around the country. Unions are sounding the alarm. Anne-Marie Le Sage, the secretary general of the CGT union in the hospital in Arles, in the south of France, describes a lack of staff in her hospital. What is missing, like in the entire region, is emergency services. We've managed not to close ours. But we're on the edge. We check every day. But it's not just emergency services. We've closed 39 beds in Arles Hospital. We closed a whole geriatric service. Our maternity is struggling because there's a shortage of gynecologists. We lost beds in psychiatry. We have 32 nursing vacancies. Lots a lot of uh, staff shortages, Sarah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and there's this phenomenon, right, of consolidation. So services in small hospitals and clinics are closing, so they move them to larger ones in bigger cities. This leaves behind what are, are called medical deserts, mm. often in rural areas, which force people to travel sometimes hours to get the care that they need. And emergency services are seeing the impact of this. So if people can't find a doctor locally, they'll go to the emergency room, even for non-emergencies. Thierry Buquet is a CGT delegate at the Dreux Hospital, and he works as a hospital porter. Ten years ago, we admitted 35,000 patients a year. Today, it's 55,000. We have more means, but very little in relation to the amount of work. And people feel it. When I worked in emergency services before, we did not see gurneys or stretchers in the hallways. The flow of people into emergency services was nothing compared to today. We had enough beds to admit people into the hospital. They did not get stuck in the emergency room. So in this hospital, the emergency paramedical staff recently stopped work, a kind of mini-strike to protest against their poor work conditions, which forced management to go on recruiting. But that hasn't been easy because public health care work is less and less attractive. Anne-Marie Le Sage, the union representative in Arles, says people are being asked to work too much. For July and August, management wants nurses to work 12-hour days, night and day. They work 60-hour weeks, and people are on the edge of burning out. They try to resign, management refuses. It's a catastrophe. People are quitting, as they have nothing to lose, and nurses can always find work elsewhere. So the government has commissioned a report on the state of the public health care system. That's due to be presented on July 1st, and there's a plan to address the question, uh, uh, passing a new law that will reform the healthcare system. 
Healthcare workers obviously want significant wage increases, but also sort of a reorganization of how emergency and non-emergency care is provided in hospitals, maybe, for example, requiring all doctors in the private and public sector to work hospital rounds, Mm. also addressing this issue of medical deserts. This is a massive project, Mm -hmm. isn't it? And Macron isn't known for policies that really do overhaul big systems. He tends to prefer a piecemeal approach. Yeah. And in any case, none of this will be, you know, in place for a while. Mm. In the meantime, the summer is looking like it'll be quite complicated. People tend to take their holidays in the summer and and hospitals these days are reluctant to to make people work, especially after two years of grueling COVID work. They want to give them a break. Mm. The health minister has reactivated measures put in place during COVID for this summer. That includes doubling overtime pay for healthcare workers in July and August, and also allowing nursing students to start work before their degrees and making it possible for retirees to go back to work. So Mm. to have more people, you know, in the hospitals. Why not? But it is a bit of a controversial measure, isn't Mm. it? I mean, retired teachers may be going back to school, that might work, but People are a bit less reassured about the idea of putting their lives into a retired or an unqualified doctor's hands. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. But these are obviously just stock gaps. Patrick Pellou, the president of the Association of Emergency Doctors, says there's a fundamental problem in France of inequality in the healthcare system that needs to be addressed if it's to survive. The wage difference between public and private healthcare workers has become too large, he says. It has gotten worse, and that's an incredible social spiral, a form of social dumping between the wages for a doctor working for a private temping agency and one working in a public hospital. We cannot continue this way. There needs to be more social equality. For this summer, that probably means paying everyone more. That's how we will reopen beds. The system they have created means this summer is going to be dreadful. And then, of course, especially by the coast, where mm-hmm. there's going to be an influx of people going on vacation. Yeah. And just imagine, Sarah, if there were to be a heat wave like there was back in 2003 mm. when so many people died. It doesn't really bear thinking about. Yes, mm. So, Chacun fait ce qui lui plaît. That's from Chagrin d'Amour. It was top of the charts here in France in 1982. Yeah, blast from the past. Everyone does what they want. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, 1982, that year, on June 21st, so 40 years ago next week, France launched the Fête de la Musique, Mm. which is now an annual music celebration that's taken off all over the world. So, the idea is on that one day, the summer solstice, the longest day of the year, you don't need a permit to play music in the street, and you can play all through the night if you want. So some big names usually put on concerts mm-hmm. for free, yeah. so that's cool. But more importantly, amateurs also get their moment of glory. They can take over street corners and plug into bars and restaurants and play for the world or anyone who happens to be passing by. It yeah. can be brilliant or it can be a complete mess, a cacophony. Yeah, it is a cacophony. I mean, there is this, I've had memories of just walking through a street, you know, in Paris and going from, you know, one soundscape to another of like jazz, moving into rock, mm. moving into rap. I must say that these days there's a 
lot more electronic music being pumped out of speakers and DJs. I mean, at, at least around me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I've been in smaller places, though, um, on some June 21st, where there's been a stage sort of set up in the middle of town. It's yeah. been cool because there have been a succession of local acts taking the mic. Yeah. No, no, it can be it can be superb. Huh? Mm-hmm. I've, I've, I moved to the suburbs a while ago. And as we haven't had a proper Fit the Land music now for the last two years because of COVID, it'll be a real discovery for me to see what they put on locally. Yeah, yeah. So the FET itself was the brainchild of Jack Lang. He was the culture minister in the 1980s under François Mitterrand, for whom culture was a major aspect of his presidency. It turns out Lang got the idea from an American musician, Joel Cohen, who was working for France Musique Public Radio. And in 1976, he hosted an all-night music programme on the 21st of June and 21st of December. And that was to mark the summer and the winter solstices. Yeah, and then a few years later, on June 10th, 1981, to celebrate Mitterrand's presidency, the new Minister of Free Time, huh. yes, <laughs> that was a thing for two years under Mitterrand, right. um, hosted an all-day music festival to celebrate the new president. Lang decided that was the format he wanted, and he and the director of music at the Culture Ministry, Maurice Fleuret, decided this was a way to showcase France's musical talent. Il y a plus de 5 millions de Français qui font de la musique. Un Français sur trois possède au moins un instrument de musique. So more than 5 million French people play music, says Fleuret. More than one out of three people have a musical instrument. But we only know the tip of the iceberg of our musical talents, the big institutions and the stars. Now, this is 1982. France was in the midst of a pretty bad economic crisis with massive inflation. And a journalist asked Jack Lang if the government really should be supporting a party at that time. Of course, he said. Mais je crois que si on veut gagner les batailles contre la dépression, contre If we want to win the battle against economic depression, against unemployment, to reboot the country's economy, we need self-confidence, he said, and highlighting people's musical talent is part of that. A morose, depressed country doesn't win an economic battle. Wow, what a message. <laughs> we could do it with a bit of that now, I think. Sure, sure. Mm. Well, Lang and his team launched on June 21st, 1982, the Fête de la Musique. It was supposed to be a half an hour. Wow. People playing music. Only. Yeah, yeah, between 8.30 and 9 p.m. <laughs> bit military. Yeah, and they weren't sure if it would catch on. But it did. A million people came out for the first edition and they played all into the night. Oh, so they ignored completely the sure, rules. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it was sort yeah. of, I guess, supposed to be a time when any, everybody was playing at the same time yeah. and they continued playing. And it's become an annual thing. Um, it's caught on abroad. Now some 120 countries have their versions of the Fête de la Musique. Not all memories, though, of this annual festival are good ones. Yeah. Uh, for some people, the Fête de la Musique will forever be linked with police violence. In 2019 in Nantes, Brittany, police intervened to shut down an outdoor techno concert. They charged the crowd. There were major clashes and 14 young people ended up being pushed into the river. One of them was 24-year-old Steve Canisou. Uh, his body was found in the water a month later. The initial police report found that his death was not linked to the charge, but a fuller judicial inquiry ended up concluding that it was. (laughs) 
Sarah, imagine studying for five or six years to become an agricultural engineer. You, you then graduate from one of France's elite universities. And then, instead of bagging some well-paid job in a big company, you turn your back on it all and start, for example, beekeeping. Hmm. I, fe I feel like we're hearing more and more of these kinds of stories these days. I mean, especially with the COVID pandemic, putting a lot of work culture into question. Yeah, lots of people looking for a bit more meaning mm -hmm. in their jobs, uh, how they spend their time. Well, a handful of new graduates from AgroParisTech have just jacked in their potential high-flying careers to do something very different. Mm. AgroParisTech is a very prestigious university in France. It trains engineers in life, food and environmental sciences. It produces some of the best brains that will go on to work in the agrotech world, especially in, in the field of innovation. And agriculture is a big deal for France. It's the EU's largest producer, mm. and, and the industry here really is based on intensive farming, techniques that have been developed by engineers coming out of these schools. So that's why what happened at this year's AgroParisTech's graduation ceremony was so surprising. Uh, nearly 400 students were picking up their diplomas and eight of them filed onto the stage and threw a spanner in the works. So they gave a seven-minute speech in which they explained why they were deserting the industry that they'd been trained to go into. They call it bifurqué, or swerving, and they encourage their fellow students to make the change too. We don't want to pretend to be proud and deserving of a diploma for studies which have pushed us to take part in social and ecological devastation, says this student. We don't see ourselves as talent working for a sustainable planet. We see that agribusiness is waging a war on the living world and against farmers everywhere on earth. AgroParisTech forms chaque année des centaines d'élèves à travailler pour l'industrie. AgroParisTech educates hundreds of students every year to work for industry, tampering with plants in labs for multinationals that are increasingly enslaving farmers, says this guy, counting frogs and butterflies so that people who lay down concrete can make them disappear. These kind of jobs are destructive and choosing them is doing harm. We're addressing those of you who doubt, those of you who feel uneasy without being able to say why, who find this world is crazy and who want to do something but don't know what, those of you who hope to change things from the inside but have stopped believing they could. You're not the only ones to find there's something wrong. There really is. Quelle vie voulons-nous? Un patron cynique? Un salaire qui permet de prendre l'avion? What life do we want, he asks. A cynical boss, a salary that allows you to fly around the world, a 30-year mortgage, an electric SUV, a fair phone, and an organic shop loyalty card, and then a burnout at 40? Let's leave before we get stuck with financial obligations. You can swerve now. Well, that's dramatic stuff. What's been the reaction to this? Well, the video of that speech, uh, which they made, published a couple of days after, has been seen online close to 900,000 times. They've had plenty of support. An author of the IPCC report on climate change praised the speech as extremely powerful. But they do have their detractors. The students have been marked as being Amish types who are anti-progress, anti-science. Some media have accused them of being irresponsible and selfish, trashing their diplomas and training. 
Wow. So lots of lots of reaction there. They've yeah. clearly struck a nerve. Yeah, they're definitely not Macron compatible. Mm. Uh, they don't believe that the startup nation will save the planet or society. Only degrowth can do that. So, OK, they're ditching their degrees or yep. ditching their high powered jobs. What, what kind of work are they going to be swerving into? Well, there's beekeeping, for example, mm. collective farming projects, seasonal work. Some of them are activists. They're fighting the nuclear industry and they're fighting construction on agricultural land. Like Gwen, she's one of the eight. Uh, she lives in the ZAD in Notre-Dame-des-Landes, near Nantes in West France. ZAD means zone to defend. It's a, a very famous place in France, Activists first moved there back in the early 2010s to stop farmland being used to build an airport. The project was ultimately dropped, but the ZAD has remained. They're developing a collective anti-capitalist lifestyle, and that's where Gwen has been investing her knowledge and energy, especially since finishing at AgroParisTech. I talked to her about her projects and the school, uh, which she told me is too connected to industry. A lot of the content of some lessons was oriented to make us believe that agro-industry can have solutions to the current crisis. And uh, it's actually making more, much more harm than good, following logics of uh, profits and that it's not uh, acting for the interest of uh, the society and for the interests of the environment. So things like sustainable development or green growth, these are terms that you think are just greenwashing? In my opinion, currently the, the capitalist system is really coming to such a huge level of destruction of people, destruction of land, destruction of the environment and nature, that it needs to create a collective illusion that things can be reformed and be more green and we can slightly bend uh, towards a more green direction. But to me, it's just a, a kind of way to win some time for the current uh, system and for the people who are benefiting from it. It's kind of a, a huge illusion that prevents uh, people from, from rebelling. I think it's kind of a way to put people to sleep. Yeah, so you're advocating much more radical change and more radical ecology. <laughs> yeah, but what is radical in the end? Because... What is currently going on now is extremely radical. Like uh, when, when you see a project being put in place in France, for example, uh, every nine years there is the equivalent of, in French we say department, but it's a small region of France that is being put under concrete. The soil is being tore off and replaced by some concrete, for example. To me, this is extremely radical. Like it's just having a very different idea of, what direction we could all take together. Some people will always say, hang on a minute, you've got the qualifications, you've got the intelligence, you've had all this training. Surely it's better to use that and try and change the system from within. So we talked a lot about this uh, together with the other students. We believe that when you try to change the system from the inside, the system changes you. <laughs> And uh, also, I don't think we are telling people to just desert and disappear uh, somewhere in the mountains in isolation. We actually call for also fighting against the system. And to fight against it, we need our knowledge. We, we can put our knowledge and our intelligence to fight against the current injustice, uh, the current huge 
projects that are destroying land or destroying people also. I really believe that we can use our competences, intelligence for something much better. So people who say you're nihilist, you deny that? Yeah, I think really we are not nihilist. It gives us actually energy to believe that we can emancipate ourselves and we can encourage others as well to emancipate from the techno-industrial system, to build something new. To me, it's my only hope in this really awful crisis we are undergoing these crises, which are results of political choices. Just tell me a bit about what you have decided to do then. I'm living in a place called the Zad. Zad means zone to defend. They called for people to occupy this place to prevent the airport from being built. And it created something really interesting. The people here started to imagine and put in practice a way of living that was kind of anti-capitalist and also... Um, uh, self-organization methods and I came to live here like three years ago and I'm doing uh, we are doing together new ways of organizing for agriculture politics things like this and also personally I, I take uh, part in some struggles in France for example I, I do collective agriculture here and uh, we can bring food to people who are on strike or doing some uh, protests. Sometimes we come with uh, our own tractors to make huge lines of tractors in protests and things like this. You're describing a very alternative lifestyle. It's all very well, isn't it, to call on your fellow students, young people, to give up their jobs or change direction and go and do something different. But not everybody mm -hmm. can do that, can they? Perhaps you're a group of fairly privileged students. We know that it's much easier for us who have usually less financial constraints. Uh, and I think we are really aware that most of us come from privileged classes in, in the society. But we received hundreds of messages from very different kinds of people, even farmers who said that this uh, speech had moved them. And so we thought that even though at first we were only talking to engineers or coming to be engineers, we realized that actually it was touching people everywhere in the society. But we know that we are not in a position to tell people in uh, less privileged situations than us what to do. That's why, for example, here in Nantes, uh, with the help of other people, we, we started groups of discussion around uh, this uh, swerving and very different kinds of people came. And we believe that people all together with all their differences can, by meeting, by actually starting to do what we consider as politics, which starts by discussion and uh, collective organization, we think that there should be ways of doing this swerving, uh, no matter from which class of the society we come from. What matters is not what you have thought of what we, we said during the speech, if you heard it. What matters is what you will do now. Wherever you are now uh, listening to this, around you there is some, maybe some projects going on of that are destroying land or destroying people. And you can do something, you can join the struggles against them. Find your own way of participating to these struggles if you want. 
So there's a call to action. Um, this is interesting coming just ahead of the final round of the parliamentary elections. I mean, are these students involved in politics in the in the traditional sense? Far from it, mm. Sarah. Even though Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the leader of the leftist anti-capitalist France Unbowed, retweeted the student's speech and he said that, you know, this younger generation deserting what he called the absurd, cruel world we live in was for him a sign of great hope. The deserters, if you like, they say they're not involved in his movement and they don't believe that institutional politics can change anything. Real change, they say, can only come from grassroots action. And we've come to the end of the show. Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. And if you want to get in touch with us, do send us a note at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. You can also find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. Previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back on Thursday, June the 30th. Bye-bye, Sarah. Bye, Alison. Bye, Alison.